Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Starseed Radio Academy, empowering Starseed to better serve the planet. Welcome to Starseed Radio Academy. It's Tuesday, October 13, 2020, and I'm your host, Arielle Taylor, with my co-hosts, Lavendar and Anastasia. Mercury is going retrograde tonight in about an hour, and it will be that way for three weeks. You can read about that online, but generally it's not a good time for launching new projects, signing contracts, or buying electronics. Our show tonight is Crack Between the Worlds, which is Lavendar's story of how her ET colleagues first revealed the work she was to do in bringing the star marking codes to Earth. They did a demonstration about walk-ins and led her to a connection with George Van Tassel, who was another early contactee. George is known for building the Integratron near Giant Rock in California. This story is the pivotal point in her mission and the foundation of the beginning of her work. She describes all the high strangeness that occurred during that time and the prophecy she was given about giant rock cracking in two. That would be her signal to release the light information, which she has been doing through this radio show and her work with her clients. A word of caution, though, do not listen to this episode while you're driving, because many people have reported physical reactions to hearing it. We replay this episode every few years for those new listeners who may not have heard it, and even those who have still hear something they missed before. And you can find Lavendar at starseedhotline.com. At the top of the show, it's Anastasia's Starseed News, bringing topics of interest to Starseeds that you won't hear in the mainstream. And since this show was pre-recorded, we won't be taking questions at the end. We have an online Starseed community at starseedhotline.ning.com, and it's a safe place to connect with other Starseeds, thanks to Tammy's continual dedication. You can download our shows on iTunes or right here on Blog Talk. And if you'd like to show your support of our program, please just click follow on our page here and you'll get our show notices, which are two a month, if you enable those notifications. Our main website is starseedhotline.com and the Stage 1 Starseed confirmations are based on Lavendar's discovery of star markings and your natal astrological chart, and the Stage 2 session is a one-on-one phone session available with Lavendar, Anastasia, or myself. And please be aware that due to a massive global Starseed activation, our waiting lists are at about six months, but that is finally shrinking because our new team of astrologers have completed their Starseed training and are now helping us and our Starseed community. If you have a birthday coming up, be sure you don't miss out on your 10 hours of power. You can find out when that happens by requesting your solar return timing, and that only takes a few days. But if you want the Stage 2 interpretation of that chart, you'll need to order at least six months ahead of time to, you, to make sure you get it before your 10 hours. So uh, first up this evening, I would like to introduce Anastasia with her ever-popular, fascinating Starseed News. <laughs> Oh, 
I'm bowing, everybody. Thank you so much, Ariel. <laughs> oh, I love that. You know, it's a bright spot. It really is. It just makes me smile every single time. Well, who doesn't oh, like getting evening. applause? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. It's fun. I'm never, it's never going to happen again. So <laughs> I love it. You know, in the football games now and stuff, on, on the sports, they're playing fake crowd sounds. So I'm not the only one that gets fake applause. <laughs> I mean, I'm in good company. Only these guys make, what, $100 million a year? But it's just kind right. of a hoot. I, isn't this just like our society? You know, we can't deal with anything real. We've got to do fake everything. Now we've got fake applause. I, I, whatever. Anyway, yeah. it makes it sound better. As long as it gets people into the spirit. But Starseed News is not fake. No, not at all. This is one of the places. Yeah, this is the real stuff here. here. Yeah, I probably should have worded that a little better. Okay. Anyway, no, okay. For, for what is true, the truth, and nothing but the absolute truth, welcome to the show. <laughs> right. Okay, we've got we've got some stuff tonight. Um, I want to start out with Mars. Uh, you know, Mars is active right now. I mean, it's 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 uh, visible. Of course, it's active, but it's visible. And Mars may never be this close to planet Earth again until 2035. Now, for the most of this month, and for the next few weeks into November, uh, people can spot Mars with little to no viewing equipment, no telescope, no binoculars, if there are clear skies and low-light pollution. Because just a few days ago, Mars came the closest it's been to planet Earth in 15 years. It's only 38,568, 816 miles away. So roughly, what, 38,000 and a half miles away. Um, it won't come up that close again until, like I said, 2035. So you might want to go outside and look up in the coming nights. So today, October 13th, Mars Mars is going into opposition, according to Space.com, which means it will completely change position and appear directly opposite to the sun. Now, while it's in opposition, Mars is going to rise at sunset and set at sunrise, and it will cast a luminous red hue across the night sky, making for a seriously unreal sight to see. So check it out. I think that's it's really a big deal, so check it out. All right, now you better do this before we get to one of our next stories about uh, space satellites, but I'll get to that later. Um, seriously, go out and look at the natural stars while you have a chance, and particularly tonight is a good time. Okay, if, you can, if you've got the vision, you know, no clouds and stuff, okay. Well, this is an amazing discovery, guys, um, and it's amazing for lots of reasons. I find it metaphysically tingling. Uh, if we are into indigenous traditions and um, stuff, so I'll explain it. So, from a, a powerful observatory in Chile, astronomers have identified six galaxies that are trapped in a web of a supermassive black hole when the universe was only 900 million years old. Now, this is described in the journal Astronomy and Astrophysics, and it's a discovery that helps explain how super-duper black holes got so big following the Big Bang. Well, these new findings lend support to the theory, here come the goosebumps, for some of us anyway, that web-like structures of gas fuel the rapid growth of supermassive black holes in the early universe. These are web filaments like spider's web threads, Okay, pause. Now, what's so important about that is in the Native American tradition, particularly the Pueblo tribes, they are very attached to a cosmic goddess called Spider Woman. 
and in in that uh, uh, belief system, Spider Woman uh, weaves reality and brings the material universe into being. So uh, I read this and I go, I think the ancients knew so much more. Uh, here it is. Uh, they have discovered that there are cosmic filaments like spider's webs that spawn uh, galaxies. What happens is the galaxies stand and grow where the filaments cross, and streams of, gra- of gas, which are available to fuel both the galaxies and the central supermassive black hole, can flow along the spider web filament. Um, now, these six discovered galaxies, based on light and distance, as I've told you, are uh, were formed right when the universe was born. So interesting. I, th- I find that to be a fascinating mental picture. You can see this gas stretching out into infinity, uh, like a spider's web, where it is spawning life all along the web. And in Native American tradition, the web of life. Amazing, cool stuff. Wow. Well, back down on Earth for a moment. Um, this is. These are starseed kids, guys. They are doing stuff. Um, in the UK, school children have begun to draft their own emergency climate bills. <laughs> they aren't waiting on uh, the grown-ups to do it. They've been frustrated by the government's response to the climate crisis, so young people in England and Scotland are taking matters into their own little bitty hands. Students in Scotland have launched a campaign to get the Scottish government to provide young people with the skills that they need to live sustainably. You know, doggone it, it's time. So this effort follows a launch of a similar campaign that happened in England where students drafted an emergency uh, climate education bill earlier this year, and neither one of these have yet entered Parliament and probably will not, but both campaigns were launched by a student-led group that aims to urgently repurpose the educational system around climate and sustainability. And these two packages, by the way, from England and Scotland are believed to be the first education legislation or the first legislation written up by children. Now, wow. I mean, you go back 30 years and kids didn't do anything but play ball and stuff. So, I mean, <coughs> wow. You know, I mean, the consciousness is, the awareness is sinking deep into all layers of society. And it has to. So, there you go. The kids wrote their own bills. Now, you know, they Grown-ups in, in the U.K. need to badger uh, their officials to enter this in Parliament and genuinely consider it. Why not? Don't ignore it. Okay. Now let's talk about more about the environment and being sustainable because there are some really interesting things happening to help the planet. And I wanted to share this with you because sometimes we get depressed about stuff. You know, I go on and on about plastic. I moan and groan about that. But... Here we go. Here's some stuff that people are doing. So um, they have uh, been doing all kinds of of stuff, from lab-grown spider silk, again, they're spider, um, to living dyes that are extracted from microalgae. Biotechnology is now being used to engineer sustainable clothing items and other things that are made now made of fabric and plastic. Now, one material is called circulose. It uses worn-out clothes that have been stripped of everything, They shred this stuff, put it in a slurry, mix it with wood pulp, and turn it into fashion for the fashion industry. And the Internet had photographs. that It looks beautiful. It drapes beautifully. It's great. And then there's something that's called, again, synthetic spider silk. And spider silk is five times stronger than steel. 
But, of course, it can't be harvested for human clothing. At least it hasn't been. But now, after years of research, a Japanese biotech company is making the equivalent of that material in a lab. They're making synthetic spider silk. And this process begins by, here you go, guys. Anyway, for what it's worth, they're genetically modifying DNA of microbes to create proteins, which they uh, feed uh, with nutrients in big vats. And this begins to ferment in a process like brewing beer. And then it's dried into a powder, and it's further processed to create uh, other fibers, uh, gels, synthetic leathers, and more stuff. In fact, they've made a North Face jacket for women from this synthetic spider silk. I've seen pictures of it. It looks really nice. And then, you know, think about this. First of all, we have to think about all the clothing we throw out, tons and tons and tons of it, and all of the dyes that are in that clothing, and how the the dye industry has been polluting the environment, as well as leather industries, and so on and so forth. Well, anyway, they say that currently up to 8,000 synthetic chemicals are used in the creation of fashion and footwear, which, of course, is definitely hazardous to work with, and it does pollute water systems. But now, one German company has developed something... uh, well, non-toxic pigments. And how do they do that? that that's amazing because most of this stuff is, is toxic. So they're using freshwater microalgae that are grown in bioreactors. They extract harmless pigments from those, and then they make dyes for the textile industry. And now they have a new thing called uh, algae T-shirts that are coming onto the market. Check it out, algae T-shirts. They're making shoes from field corn. And uh, they are making polyester uh, from methane. Uh, they're, they're fermenting methane with water and bacteria to make a new type of bioplastic called PHA. And that will one day replace the kind of plastic that we know today, made from methane. Wow, that, that's ingenious. That is well, also yeah. advanced. The thinking is advanced. The, you know, I mean... It shows us how many possibilities, how many solutions are out there if we can get beyond our structured thinking about things. And wonderfully, wonderfully, there are people out there who are doing just that. So hang on, because probably for uh, every situation we encounter, there's an answer for it, and we know there is, and there's people working on it. Now, back to space again. (laughs) You guys getting whiplash. (laughs) Um, Back to space, and my caution that you should get out and look at the sky while you can <clears throat> SpaceX is launching another 60 Starlink satellites, and they're making a mega constellation. We've talked about that before. Uh, a mega constellation that's designed to provide global broadband coverage for high-speed Internet. Uh, boy. Well, they initially set their goal to be 1,440 strong. The company has changed its mind. It's going to launch thousands more. They say that SpaceX is inching closer and closer to the goal because it's put nearly 800 into orbit so far. Now, the Federal Communications Commission has granted them uh, permission to launch as many as 12,000 of these flat panel satellites, but SpaceX isn't going to stop there. They said that they're going to seek approval to launch as many 30,000 of its Internet beaming satellites uh, to be uh-huh. down Internet signals. And environmentalists are telling us, forget the sky, you won't see the stars anymore. So, <clears throat> for those of you that want something to work on, there it is. <clears throat> Let's get busy. <laughs> Try to stop that thing. Right. Okay. 
FYI, for your information, coronavirus can survive on skin for nine hours. The new coronavirus can linger for uh, nine hours, which is much longer than flu viruses. Um, Studies uh, in Japan uh, showed that it does stay for nine hours, as opposed to the influenza A virus, which can be on the skin for about two hours. Now, the point being is that it can last on skin, but uh, both viruses, both kinds, are rapidly inactivated with hand sanitizer. So these findings underscore the importance of washing your hands and using sanitizer and or uh, to prevent the spread. So they say proper hand hygiene is important, and this study proves it. So there. Hmm. Okay. (laughs) And check this out. You know, has anybody in your wildest imagination, I'll bet you all have, I'll bet bet everybody out there has maybe thought of this, but created in your mind an imaginary planet, you know, what you might make of it, how it might look, what it might be like. I know the artistic among you have done that. Well, they have discovered now that at least two dozen planets outside this solar system might be better for life than here on Earth. Wow, a a planet that's better for life than Earth. They found them. Uh, They say these planets are a little older and a little wetter, a little warmer and a little larger. And this was reported last month in the journal Astrobiology. And all of this can mean that some of these planets are the best places to search for extraterrestrial life. And one of the astrobiologists said, he's with the University of Washington, I'm quoting him, he said, we shouldn't get stuck looking for a second Earth because there could be planets that might be more suitable to life than ours. Now, to date, astronomers have discovered more than 4,000 exoplanets outside the solar system. Most are not conducive to life, but there are also many planets within the star's habitable zone that's just the right distance, which is conducive uh, to life. And so they say that pinpointing what makes a planet super habitable is important because it's possible that one of these planets will be discovered within 100 light years, very close. If so, they wrote in the study, that planet should be the first place Earthlings turn to find out if there is other life in the universe. So a, a place that might be better for life than Earth, that's a concept that's kind of hard to wrap your head around. In any event, this report indicates that, hey, you know, it's more likely than what they might be telling us. Very interesting. All right. We're going to end with this. The most important annual celebration is, depending on who you are, but I like it, it's called Fat Bear Week. Well, through the pandemic, uh, politics, uh, climate problems, weather problems, you know, it takes a massive toll on the psyche. But this is good news. So the greatest holiday of the year, Anastasia declares, is Fat Bear Week. (laughs) because this is something that they do at the Katmai National Park in Alaska. And it it occurs in the days that are leading up to the hibernation season for bears. And what they do is they put on their website, and you guys got to check this out. I'll tell you about it in a minute. Uh, They put on their website a number of especially well-fed bears from Katmai National Park in Alaska. And people get to vote on the greatest and the most rotund fat bear of the bunch. So we're trying to find the fattest bear. And why? Uh, Man, some of these bears are really fat. 
What's important about fat bears? Well, other than being adorable, each winter, when they're in their dens, they endure months-long famine. They get nothing to eat during hibernation. They don't eat, they don't drink, and they lose one-third of their body weight. Their winter survival depends on accumulating ample fat reserves before entering their dens. And bears spend just about every single waking minute to put fat for the winter because they're trying to satisfy this instinctive, profound hunger. Imagine that. A goal of just being as big as you could. I would really nail that chocolate ice cream if I could. <laughs> Each, I mean, what a destiny, okay? That's all you've got to do, bear, is sleep and eat. I want to be a bear next time, all right? What a cool thing. I mean, they don't know about chocolate ice cream, but, you know, what they find stuff they like. Well, each bear, bear faces its own challenges in order to gain the body mass necessary to survive because, you know, adult males have different needs. They need to go really big so that they can dominate the best fishing spots and, of course, find, find a lady. And female bears need to gain weight because they need to support their cubs. So, And they say that bear cubs need to gain weight, and so do the, you know, all, all ages of bears, they've got to have this weight. So what they do is they start stuffing themselves on the most easily obtainable foods first. And up there in Alaska, it most generally means salmon. And so there are photos of these dozens and dozens of bears at this time of the year gathering at a river in the park to feast on salmon. Now, Katmai National Park in Bristol Bay in Alaska is home to more brown bears than people. And the largest, healthiest runs of sockeye salmon left remaining on the planet. So, now let me report to you the results of the 2020 Fat Bear election. It's happened. And the Fat Bear that won the prize is known only as Fat Bear 707. He was emerged the winner with more than twice as many votes as his opponent. Now, I'm liking this a lot better than what's coming up next month, okay? This is the kind of election I like, okay? Fat Bear 707 won. And he fulfills the fate of the fat and fabulous among bears as he heads off to hibernation. So he has fulfilled his destiny, and we know he's going to have a good year and a good future. Now, having said all of that, and I know that seems frivolous, but I think it's wonderful, and you'll feel the same way I do if you go to a wonderful website. Everybody listen to this. It's easy to remember. Explore.org. Explore.org. Everybody. This is a website that has live videos of bears, lions, hawks, horses, cats, anything and everything you can think of, um, many animals. And this is a way to connect with nature. These are live video feeds uh, in the wilds of the world where we can watch animals in their own habitat. And I think that is a wonderful thing to do, and it will lift you up. So if you are locked in, if you can't live in a place where you can't get into nature, Make yourself something, a nice cup of tea, kick back, open this up, and spend some time with nature through video because it works, and uh, it'll help you and make you feel better, I promise, and inspire you about this world and what we can do to be good stewards of it and be a part of it, not stewards, but to be one with it. It is part of us. All right, I'm going to leave you with a quote. Because we are facing, we are on the cusp of change. Um, and it's up to us to decide what that change is going to be like. We're not going to leave that up to others to decide, are we? We're going to use our consciousness, our energy, 
our spirituality and our involvement to see that we contribute to the positive change in this world. We're not going to let the other guys have a say, particularly, because we're going to do it. And Winston Churchill put it this way. He said, to improve is to change. To be perfect is to change often. And George Bernard Shaw said, progress is impossible without change, and those who cannot change their minds cannot change anything. And if you look at the world as it's gone along all of these times, and you see people entrenched in their thinking, thinking of every kind, every type, every single thing is set. You know, reality is only set if you decide that it is. If you cannot change your mind, nothing will change. And I love each and every one of you starseeds because you have open minds and open hearts, and you're eager to see what we can do and what we can make. You came here to do just that. And so don't pay any mind to those who won't change their minds and who won't change anything. You're here. And others are coming and others are gathering. And the time is now. So use your imaginations, your hearts, your hope, your determination, your vital resources, your life force to exercise the changes and to change your minds if necessary. But understand the meaning of change and don't be afraid of it. Just simply lean into it and let the universe help you. It will help you make the changes happen that need to be for the welfare of all of us, all of creation, everywhere. Okay. From my heart to each one of you, have a beautiful couple of weeks, everybody. And hang on. (laughs) I love you. (laughs) Thanks so much, Anastasia. Really good job tonight and uh, some good thoughts to ponder there. So we will um, talk to you uh, two weeks from tonight. Yep. Okay. Take Take care. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Okay. Well, we are just about to present Crack Between the Worlds, but um, I just wanted to give Lavendar a chance to uh, introduce it. So let me get that microphone open. Hey, Lavendar. Well, hey. I'm ready to... um to hear Crack Between the Worlds again. <laughs> have, have not heard it for a while. Uh, I, well, I did want to say a couple of things about uh, Crack Between the Worlds, and that is that at the time that I uh, wrote it and put it together, I was very reluctant to release it to the world because I, I felt like that um, the world was not ready to hear that. And yet, when I did decide to release it, I was very pleasantly surprised that there were more awake people that understood where I was coming from with my story. And as time goes on, and I have these sessions with these starseeds every day, more and more people are uh, telling me how much crack between the worlds lit them up or awakened them or they got to understand more about how ETs function on the planet. So after all my holding back and not wanting to do it, and, and Ariel, you're the one that really made me do this website <laughs> because, you know, I was very reluctant because I, I was not ready to step out in the world because of what I had countered, you know, for many, many years with uh, so many people um, saying that I was nuts, crazy, and that didn't really happen. And through all my witnesses and through everything that I've gone through with this story, Crack Between the Worlds, I can firmly say that I stand on top of it. I'm here to 
to um, be a part of this story. It started uh, a long time ago when I was born, and and now that I'm 77 years old, I'm ready to take it to its next level. So we are looking at doing the book and doing a miniseries or a movie based on Crack Between the Worlds. So there you have it, Ariel. Okay. Well, um, I'm going to start the recording, and I just want to say, Lavendar, that you have changed so many lives. You've opened up so many eyes. You have empowered people, countless numbers of people all over the planet. And the work that you have done is still unfolding. So speaking for all the star seeds on the planet, we are so grateful and appreciative of your unwavering dedication to this light information. Well, thank you so much. In times like we're having now, I know that then when this craziness gets over with, that we star seeds will rise, and we'll rise all at once. And when that happens, it's going to be a glorious day, and I know it's coming. It is, but not now. Not now. Not we have now. to wait. Besides, uh, keep, yeah, we have to keep our head down, stay under the radar. I, I kind of pretend like I'm a submarine on the bottom of the ocean, and I come up with a periscope, and I look around, and then I go back down. <laughs> That's how I'm feeling. <laughs> What's happening? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel like I'm yeah. in Galactic Witness Protection Program. Really? I know what you mean. Really. <laughs> okay. All right. So okay. with that, we now present Crack Between the Worlds. Okay. Thanks. Crack Between the Worlds, read by Lavendar. This is a document that has been in the making for a very long time. Most of this information has been kept in a bank vault for over 30 years. I've decided to release this story at this time because now is the time. On March 4, 2000, I discovered on the Sightings.com webpage a story about an event that shook my soul to its foundation. Giant Rock, a huge boulder sitting in the area of Landers, California, had suddenly split open, exposing a gleaming white granite interior. Giant Rock had long been a sacred site for UFO researchers, along with Native American lore. The description of the splitting of the rock is presented in an article by James Twyman, author of Emissary of Light and Secret of the Beloved Disciple. His website www.jamestwyman.com and the news article can be found from the High Desert Star newspaper dated Wednesday, February 23, 2000. So why did the news of the splitting of Giant Rock have such an effect on me? Because I've been holding a series of stories for several years concerning light information from ETs that are influencing our planet. Somehow, I have been given the insight to journal some events that started to take place at Giant Rock starting back in 1976. These events were witnessed by several people. Some are living while others have crossed over. As I looked at the before and after pictures of Giant Rock, well, the before picture I knew so well, the, the after picture so startling, it was a shock to my system. I knew that it was a signal to me. 
Seeing the cracked rock created into my being a release of light information that I'd been holding for over 25 years. It seemed that every file in my brain's computer wanted to download, and I kept saying, Oh, not now. It isn't time. I just can't do this now. I instantly knew that I had to put up my visible hands to my head as though I could stop this. I kept chanting, No, 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 as though I, I had any power over memories of this magnitude. It was at that moment that I felt an outside presence enter the room, and a calming came over me. This presence was not visible, and yet I was aware that it was there. The struggle with the filing system in my head seemed to be closed off. All at once, I knew that within 24 hours, I'd be released to write this story. Sacred time and space would be provided for me. I would simply sit down properly and release through the keyboard of my computer what I could remember or what I'd be allowed to remember. For days now, it had seemed that information about Giant Rock was about to surface. The day that the rock actually split was on a Monday, February 21st, 2000. My mother had a statement to me that certainly got my attention. At the time of this writing, my mother was 85 years old and was in a wheelchair. I had taken some of her artwork out and noticed that she had about 18 canvases that were unfinished and not signed. I asked her if she'd signed the pictures as I felt that her signature should be on them. She replied that she would not sign a picture until it was finished. I promised her that if I would take art lessons and learn some of her techniques that perhaps I could finish some of her paintings. She agreed and proceeded to tell me about each picture and what needed to be done to finish it. When I came to a painting that was of the sand dunes and mysterious blue and pink sky, I blurted out, Oh, this can be a picture of me at Giant Rock with George Van Tassel. My mother squinted her eyes with that little leprechaun look and said, Yes, and you haven't finished doing what you said you were going to do. And I said, Well, I think I've done about 25%. And she said, when are you going to do the rest of the story? And I said, I don't know. Now, the thing that amazed me about her statement was that I couldn't remember telling her anything about my promise to George Van Tassel. I looked at the painting of the sand dunes, and I could see, just as though it were yesterday, George walking toward the dunes and me walking back to the house where he lived. I also remembered that it was the last time that we had a three-hour one-to-one talk. In fact, I can now say with certainty that it was the last time I saw the true essence of George Van Tassel, period. The vision of me walking towards the house and not looking back seemed to freeze frame in my brain, and all at once I said, Mother, I know what I will paint, a man walking in one direction and a woman walking towards us. And she said, You never will. I mean never learn to draw people and paint them. And with that, she just totally dismissed the painting. And a mother-daughter shutdown had occurred. And, well, you know the kind of electromagnetic psychic pulses that happen with certain genie bloodlines. And my mother was a genie. And she was certainly out of her bottle. I put the canvas down on the floor. 
and as I placed it, a series of pictures started flashing in my head. They were of the day that George took me for a walk and gave me information about ETs, walk-ins, mind control, ET government experiments, advanced technology, and spiritual insight. He clearly defined his ET source and from his perspective clues of their experiments. He turned to me and his, and his gentle voice said, one day you will need to release this light information to the world and you will know the right time because the signal will come when giant rock cracks. This will signify a communication line that represents the crack between the worlds. When this happens, then that will be your signal to release your light information, but with a lot of discernment. I asked him what he meant by when giant rock cracks and he went into great explanation about this information concerning the crack between the worlds and said that a demonstration and in unison with other dimensions would be lightning from the sky and the boulder would just simply crack open. He said it wouldn't happen for a long time and that I shouldn't concern myself with it now but that I was only to remember it when giant rock would crack. He said that I would write it down and pass it on to the next seven generations of people to come. And I asked him, why so long a time? And he said, the light information that I'm going to give to you will not be understood by many until then. But there will be those that will relate to this, and it is for them that you must pass this light information on. As we walked through the sand dunes, he related information about time travel, rejuvenation, ET technologies, walk-ins, and dimensional interconnectedness that occurred with certain codings and timings. He was able to transfer this light information in three hours, but it would take me 25 years to live it, decode it, and then translate it into story form. At that time, I was 33 years old and just starting on my spiritual journey into something I have referred to as Beyond Z. Through these years, I've come to know and understand some of the information that George gave me that day. Some I have already written about, while other aspects have been experienced, but not yet journaled. Now that the rock has cracked open, it seems to signal to me that perhaps it is time to release the information about the stories of Giant Rock, George and Doris Van Tassel, and the visitations of the ETs. I could hear him saying this as clearly as though it were yesterday. And I said to myself, oh, not now. This isn't the time as I push the memories away. As part of this coordinated coincidence, a few days later, I received a phone call from Ariel telling me that she had been in contact with a man who had been to Giant Rock and had had many visits with Doris Van Tassel, George's second wife. I thought this seemed odd, especially after my recent experience with my mother in the sand dunes painting. As Ariel's talked, I started flashing again on a series of events that had taken place at Giant Rock. Once again I said, not now, this isn't the time, as I continued to push even further back my memories as they were coming through a place that I call the crack between the worlds. It was all that I could do just to listen to her explaining her relationship with her new friend. 
I was experiencing a series of flashing pictures and trying to listen to her at the same time. Pretty soon, I had to turn my screen off and just go blank. Sometimes, this is the only way that I can hold my sanity together. I was on automatic pilot now and knew it. I also knew that something was approaching from the crack between the worlds, and the next time, I didn't know if I could stop the visions with a simple blank screen. Through the years, I had learned the cadence and the deliverance system from the otherware. And it seems as though they use it in a one, two, three punch system just before they knock me out with sacred data or before they release me to download information. I have never been able to discern whether it is incoming or outgoing or both. Being dyslexic, I guess it doesn't matter. Before I talk about my walk with George and the sand dunes, I should mention what happened to me on February 7, 1977. It all started with my romantic fling with a young man from Alaska who owned a helicopter company. I was truly smitten, and his physical sexual proudness kept my head spinning. On New Year's Eve, we were drinking Jack Daniels and really partying on the Strip in Las Vegas. At the moment of midnight, he took me in his helicopter and we buzzed the Strip and flew back to the airport. How we escaped the police and death is beyond me. He went home with me that night and moved into my apartment. The next day, I discovered that my favorite wristwatch with tiny diamonds was missing. My father had given me this wristwatch for my high school graduation, and it was very special to me. I retraced my steps and toured Ever Casino, but to no avail. I was simply devastated and felt a part of me was truly missing. We spent all of January in romantic bliss until one night while dancing at the Mount Charleston Lodge, I became overwhelmed with a strong feeling that he was going to leave me for my best friend, Diana. It was so strong that I fled the dance floor and immediately went home. He tried to convince me that this would never happen, that he truly detested Diana. The next day, I tried to shake this vision, but I couldn't. He brought me flowers, we had a romantic dinner, then went downtown to see a movie. When we got home, I had such a foreboding that I sat down with a bottle of Jack Daniels and drank most of it. When I went into the bedroom, I heard a voice tell me to look at him sleeping and remember it, for it would be the last time he would spend the night there. I was drunk and thought I was hearing things, but I did remember it. The next morning, the voice started speaking inside my head again, saying things like, Watch him get dressed. Watch him eat breakfast. Now watch him walk out the door, for he will not be back. You will not ever see him again. I heard this, but didn't want to believe it. Sure enough, that night Diana called me to tell me he was over at her house. They stayed in bed for two weeks and got married. He never came back for his clothes, and I never saw him again. He vanished out of my life. I was out of my mind with grief. I canceled all my appointments and wouldn't leave my apartment until I received a telephone call from Doris Van Tassel from Giant Rock. She asked me if I would come immediately to see her. She said it was urgent. I had a girlfriend named Sally that had her own airplane, so she flew me down there. 
There was a landing strip at Giant Rock, as it was used to be. It used to be an airport. When I got out of the plane, there were stores, thin, petite, white pixie hair with arms waiting to greet me. As she hugged me, I felt a sense of release from my heartbreak, almost like it fading from my mind. She grabbed Sally and said, Lavender needs to be alone so that she can sit inside the room below Giant Rock by herself. She needs some clarity. And with that, they drove off to the house, which was about a mile away. I was stunned, and yet I obeyed and went down the stairs to the room under the rock. This room had only one door in or out. I was there several minutes. When I started to climb the stairs to leave, I heard a voice behind me. When I turned around, there was a dark-haired man who had, well, he was bald on top. He looked like he'd put on a really bad hairpiece because, well, the hairpiece didn't look real, and there was this, this bald spot. It was just confusing. I noticed that his skin had no pores, and he looked bronze, like someone had just chiseled him out of a statue. His face was quite handsome. He reminded me of a cross between actors John Saxon and John Gavin. He was taller than me, and yet I felt the same size when in his presence. His eyes, what can I say, did make any sense. They were gold and blue and then green and black, then a rainbow of colors that aren't even in our spectrum. How do I describe a color with no reference point? Startled, I said, well, who are you and what do you want of me? And the next thing that happened was so freaky that it blanked my mind where I couldn't hear any words come from him. All I remember was that he motioned for me to open my hand, and when I did, I looked down, and in my hand there was my lost wristwatch. As he closed my hand and held it, he filled me with so much light that my five senses went into a blur. I couldn't see, hear, or smell. I was just totally overwhelmed. I couldn't even tell if I shut my eyes or not. The only thing I could remember after that was that he telepathically told me that I would not be able to convey to anyone about this transfer of light information until I had experienced it by living it. He told me, you are the demonstration and experiment of light information, and because of this, many adventures will be forthcoming, and you are to journal them, hold them in sacred space, until such a time as light information demonstrations will be embraced by those of like mind. If you try to tell anyone of this before the time, they will be erased of this knowledge and not be able to keep it nor ever tell anyone about it. You will be alone with this, and there will be those of us that will come throughout your life to present different levels of light information that opens doors of other realities, dimensions, and direct contact with those of us of extraterrestrial heritage, not of Earth. You will be loaned out to different species for short durations in order to journal their evolutionary contributions to Earth. During this time, you will be closely monitored through your double pineal and by crystal implants that we will give you. Through this series of adventure, you will go beyond the limb. This will be a turning point. And then terms of endearment. You will remember these phrases as they will become codes that will be released some of your adventures. 
These were the names of movies of an actress that I would empower later. Then he placed his hands on my head, and I saw pictures of different vistas of trees and limbs and the environmental structure. And around these trees were images of people who looked like me, dark hair, blue eyes. I saw movie stars. First was Natalie Wood, then Elizabeth Taylor. In the distance were Joan Collins, Barbara Parkins, Susan St. James, Susan Plachette, Elizabeth Ashley, and then the authors Jacqueline Suzanne and Anne Wren. Then off to one side I saw male figures that were famous, Burt Reynolds, Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr., Dean Martin, and Dennis Weaver, all of whom I met and had interaction with, some more than others. I don't have any memory of seeing Shirley MacLaine. After all the time we spent together and the joint experiments that were conducted by ETs, one would think that she might have been predominant in the pictures, but she wasn't. The only reasonable explanation for this is that, that ever made sense was that Natalie Wood held a certain kind of evolutionary code to be played out, but she was taken out before she could finish it. Shirley was next in line to continue a certain kind of spiritual awakening for humanity. In my chapter on Shirley, this is explained in detail. Then I saw Ronald Reagan, Anwar Sadat, Gorbachev, Jerry Brown, Donald Trump, and then a stream of faces I could not identify which some of them showed up in my life in the next 25 years. Then I seemed to be going back in time, and I saw all the Founding Fathers of America, and I knew them by name. Then the scene changed, and I saw a map with the names Athens, Greece, Cairo, Egypt, Israel, Aruba, Yucatan, Hawaii, Sedona, Flagstaff, Santa Fe, Rio Doso, Washington, D.C., and two faces I didn't know at the time. I saw me on several occasions at the White House surrounded by people that I would come to know later. Congressional and Senate members and presidential hopefuls became a collage of characters parading through my life. It became obvious to me that ETs were intertwined in the political arena. And it became really obvious to me recently with Egypt. Then I saw a group of fast-moving slides on the globe. Then a map of 33 places around the globe. He took his finger and pointed to every one of them, and then he would press on my forehead after each touch of the map. He said that I was to refer to these as the 33 GM PowerPoints of Crystal Grid System Activation. It would be from here that evolutionary planning would take place and would be monitored throughout the ages, as it has been designed that way from the beginning of the planet's history. I witnessed the activation of crystal ley lines and grid points by crystalline ET computers that were buried under the ground. A lot of guardians were also at these sites, and the indigenous tribes at each location found a bloodline that was worthy of stewardship. This was usually passed down through seven generations and interlocking with other ET bloodline experiments that would sometimes be interchanged with 14 generation experiments. So much of this information is still surfacing from my memory banks and is released a little at a time depending on 
who needs to know it kind of thing. Pictures were flashing so fast that I could remember only a small percentage of the information. I was shown how astrology and astronomy work together and a galactic system based on the 12 time zone system with certain degrees indicating specific galactic codes used by different species. It was through these pictures that the discovery of star markings was introduced to my filing system, but wouldn't surface for many years. Bloodlines were a big part of this information as I saw an entire genetic system that is tracked by ETs through blood plus planetary timing based on certain planetary equations. It would be from here that he said that I could excel in matters of galactic proportions because this would reveal how ET species help to evolve a planet both negatively and positively. After this series of movies, then he imparted a brief statement that I didn't understand for many, many years to come. He silently imparted the phrase, You are and have always been the light information. Come now, come later, but you're coming with the adventures suited for a scribe. You must live this first. We will be on the standby every day of your counting. Remember, you belong to no man. You belong to us. You belong to no man. You belong to us. Then he embraced me, had me breathe with him, and seemed to walk straight through me, and then just vanished. I looked down at my wristwatch, and it was running backwards, and that is when I totally collapsed. When I woke up, I was resting on the stairs. I felt like I must be having a nervous breakdown. I thought, I have to give up drinking Jack Daniels. It's causing my mind to go crazy. Then I realized that Doris had called me down to Giant Rock just for this experience. How else could I explain the wristwatch in my hand, which had now started running forward, but was off by two hours? Over the years, I've tried to play this out in my mind and attempt to remember the rest of what he showed me. I, I have only been able to put bits and pieces of it together, however, as my life would take different turns. I would see his face and somehow knew that he had foreseen or maybe even directed each adventure. Doris came to get me and take me back to the house for body treatment and dinner. Then Sally and I flew back to Las Vegas in her twin cub airplane. I was changed somehow, for the ache in my heart was gone, and I could no longer remember his name, the one I was so devastated over earlier. This would be the first of many romantic erasures to come in my life and then be erased out of my life. Whenever I would venture off my soul mission with a man, then the man would be erased. I mean erased. I had no memory of what he looked or felt like, only a shadow memory that he'd been part of my life. It takes a certain kind of male energy to even be in my presence, let alone my everyday life. Not many can handle the galactic pressures that accompany my experiment on the planet. I used to explain this away because later in life I was struck three times by lightning and I attributed it to that, but after the giant rock experience I knew that ET technology was at work and somehow it kept my little feet on the path of my future galactic experiences. So here's the story about my walk with George Van Tassel at the sand dunes around giant rock. 
This particular event happened about a month before George passed away. George and his wife Doris had called me to come visit them on this particular weekend. They had invited a select group of people to come and view some important documents that had been put in their care, and these documents were called the Wadi Scrolls. These were scrolls that were found in the Qumran Caves close to where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. A man named Wadi had found them and had taken them to Stanford University where they had been scrutinized and authenticated for seven years. The Van Tassels felt that they wanted witnesses for the reading of this material, and they asked me, Harvey Brevere, a healer, and a Jewish couple, uh, I can only remember his name, Reuben, I can't pull their names right now, okay, to bear witness to the reading of these scrolls. They had also expressed to us that they felt that our abilities to track and discern would help them in deciding the fate of these important documents. A man named Leo had recently had a stroke and had given these scrolls to George because he felt that he wouldn't live much longer. George, in turn, entrusted this information to the four of us. We took turns reading this material, which had been carbon dated as being written during the time of Jesus the Christ. There were letters from Claudius, Pontius Pilate, and Nicodemus, both Marys and several other biblical characters. This translation from Essenes to English was written by several professors at Stanford University. We started reading the scrolls in the afternoon and we read late into the night. Each of us took turns reading out loud. We'd take breaks to discuss what we had read, but mostly we'd end up crying because of the depth of the material. The emotions this brought up in us was overwhelming. The Jewish couple gave their viewpoint based on their religion. We needed to see through their eyes on how their ancestors would view this particular point of history. By 2 a.m., I suggested that we stop reading and try to get some sleep. What a joke! We all went to our bedrooms, but who could sleep? We had just read material that could change the course of religious history. What would happen if this material were released and if people were allowed to believe it? We were too stun-gunned to sleep. All of us lay looking at the ceiling for hours. Around 4 a.m., a bright blue light flooded all of our rooms as though we needed anything else to deal with. We were frozen in time for about two hours. In truth, we probably experienced some missing time. At about 6 a.m., when I could move my body, I decided we all needed some breakfast. I went into overdrive and cooked bacon and sausage and eggs and pancakes and biscuits and potatoes and corn on the cob and plenty of coffee. This was the outlet that I needed at the moment to cook my full head off. Around 7.30 a.m. we gathered again to eat this feast prepared from the twilight zone and start discussing what we had read the day and the night before. Just as we were finishing breakfast, there was a knock on the door. There was a woman with a man in the wheelchair. It was Leo, the man that had given George the Wadi Scrolls. He said that he had been awakened in the middle of the night and was told by a voice to get up, get dressed, and drive to Giant Rock to see George immediately 
because something of importance was happening. He said the voice was so persuasive that he actually was without pain when he went to dress and was free of it as he spoke. I remembered Harvey Bevere kneeling down to speak to Leo, and after a few moments noticed that they both were in tears, discussing the Wadi Scrolls. It was a very touching moment, and one that I am not going to forget for a very long time. We all sat around the round table and started reading the scrolls out loud again, except Leo, who only listened as the stroke had taken his speech. We had done about an hour of reading when there was a knock on the door, and I got up and answered, and there, standing tall, was a young Australian man speaking with an Aussie accent. Hi, my name is Donovan Joyce, and I have written a book called The Jesus Scrolls. I know this must seem odd, but I was told by my guides to get on an airplane and fly from Australia to L.A., then rent a car and drive to the desert, past Palm Springs, to a place called Giant Rock, and once I got here, I'd know what to do. I glanced down by the door, and on a table was a copy of his book, The Jesus Scrolls, by Donovan Joyce. Someone had sent it to Doris just a few days earlier, and she hadn't had time to even pick it up, much less read it. With not a skip of a beat, I immediately invited him in and introduced him to the group, and of course we had another round of tears. It was starting to be apparent that the force was at work, and that two individuals had been instructed by voice to come to where we were sitting, sitting in a double-wide house trailer, reading from A, manuscript given by Leo, who now had joined us, and B, another author with some very similar information, being driven by voice to come to the desert by way of Australia? What? Does this sound like the Twilight Zone? Yes, because it was. It's a perfect demonstration of when information flows from the crack between the worlds. We finished reading the final chapter around 2 p.m. It was at that point that George closed the manuscript looked deep within our eyes and said the following, Lavendar, Harvey Bevere, he named the Jewish couple, I called you here because I trust you. Not only do I trust you, but also I trust your soul and your records. And I want you to tell me the truth about what I should do with this manuscript. Don't hold anything back. Just tell me how it is. And he turned to me and he said, Well, Miss Bowenera, let me hear it from you first. Well, at first I was shocked that he called on me, but then I settled into the fact, and without hesitation I just blurted out, George, if you try to publish this now, they'll just kill you. The Catholic Church alone will have hit men ready to take you out, and anyone that threatens their hold on power, well, in influence of the Church, well, this isn't just the Catholic Church, not to mention the Baptists and Methodists and Church of Christ, and just think about all the other religions, what they're going to do. All of Christianity is based on the fact that Jesus died for their sins. And there's great guilt over this, and it's used by every religion in order to control the people. The release of this manuscript would jeopardize too many people and too much power. My vote is to put it away in a vault under strict instructions not to be released until the world can handle, through consciousness, such a statement of fact. 
I spoke with a clarity that even surprised me. Although when I think about it now some years later, it was and is very clear why this manuscript or even other manuscripts like it would either be destroyed or kept under lock and key and away from the masses. Now can you imagine how I must have felt being raised a Baptist reading this manuscript? This went against everything that I ever had been taught about the Bible or religion. Although I was studying astrology and was practicing the art of being a mystic, I still had certain beliefs that would want to stay in place. The reading of this manuscript changed all of that, and I have never been the same since I read the material. George went around the table and heard from everyone what they also thought, and it was decided by the group that this material would be put in a vault. Later, it was established that when George and Doris died that the material would go to me, and that would be responsible for its safekeeping during my lifetime. This decision would change the course of my life because the magnitude of the responsibility would require that I probably wouldn't marry and have earth children because I could not put them in such a position. Their lives would never be safe. Every relationship that I would have would go through such a scrutiny. This is what I have learned through these years of silence. When one takes a cosmic oath of this magnitude, then a safeguard system is set up through a system called the Keeper of the Keys. Several keys are to be given, but only one is designed to be the one to release the information at the appointed time. That time would be determined by those aboard the Star of Bethlehem and by 33 species of galactic intent. Computer readouts would determine this, and those readouts would take place through implants of the people and the planet. It was a gigantic screening procedure through certain readout days. Mostly these days would be called Pleiadian lineup, which would match November 17, 1819, or May 17, 1819 of any given year. However, because of escalation of technology and war on the planet, there has been additional days of monitoring, and these may start as soon as November 15th or May 15th, and last as long as several days after the 19th day. On the Pleiades, this is called the celebration of planet Earth, because we are their children and they want to know how we're evolving. Think of it as their Super Bowl, with everyone around a TV set watching while partaking of their favorite beverage. This has been a tradition for thousands of years, especially since the destruction of Atlantis. The seeding, the watering, the fertilizing, and harvesting of a planet and its people have been ongoing from planet to planet through these evolutionary measures for eons of time. So sometime in late afternoon, George asked me if I would take a walk with him. He said that there were some things that he needed to discuss with me in private. I agreed and put on my walking shoes and hat, and we began to climb over the sand dunes on our way to Giant Rock. In about ten minutes, when we were out of view of the house, George started speaking to me in a very strange voice. 
I had never heard this voice before, but it was one that I knew spoke with great authority, so I listened very intently. He told me that he and other beings, and ETs and spirit wall beings, had been watching me for years and had been part of a team to prepare me for some extensive work that would be forthcoming in the next 25 years. He said that I had been part of an ET experiment from the moment of my birth and that I was coated in my blood cells. He knew that I was born with a double pineal and that I had been part of a hybrid experiment and that I'd be exposed to other world realities so that I could journal them. He said I was coated in my blood and that these codes would be released upon certain timings and that I'd be monitored day and night for the rest of my life on planet Earth. He explained to me about ET technology and implants, but more than that, he explained about time travel and what that would mean in the future when people understood the reality of going forward and backwards in time. Another topic was walk-ins and how that particular experiment was allowed with humans and the beings that be in charge of such soul interchange. Remember, this was in 1977. No one had even mentioned walk-ins at that point, not even Ruth Montgomery or anyone. This was brand new information, and it was really hard for me to hear. When he would see that I had, was having difficulty absorbing this information, he would take his hands and put them over my eyes as though he were coating me with his hands. Then he would look at me in the eyes and stare for long periods to see whether it took or not. This went on for some time with each subject matter that he would tell me about. When he saw that I couldn't handle any more information, then we'd just walk in silence until I would speak. I asked a lot of questions and received more than enough answers. This went on for about three hours. When it came time for closure, he instructed me to take his hands, look into his eyes, and with a jolt that I will never forget, charged me up with so much light that I thought I was going to explode. He told me to go back to the house and wait for him and that he needed to be alone. He turned and walked toward Giant Rock, and I practically floated back to the house. When I returned, everyone was still talking about the manuscript, but I was totally focused on the information that had just been given to me. I could tell that I had to sit alone with this, so I excused myself and went to the bedroom to rest. Several hours passed, and Doris came in and asked, Where was George? I told her that he said that he needed to be alone. She informed me that it was now 10 p.m. and that I had been back since dusk. I must have looked bewildered as though time had escaped me somehow. Everyone seemed to start being anxious about George, and a search party was convened to go out and find him. They looked for two hours, but no George. Finally, when everyone was exhausted from looking, a very peaceful George just walked up to the house and came in the door. A curious thing happened after that. He turned and winked at me and did the following. He went around and touched everyone and talked with them and in seconds their entire perception of his absence was erased. I was the only one who was allowed to see this. This was part of my training and I knew it. 
Another thing finally came over me. The George that left with me was not the George that came back. In other words, the procedures of walk-ins and how they happen, and now he was one. It was the final demonstration. This was a secret that I would have to keep for some time. In about a month, I got a call from Doris telling me to come at once, that George had just died of a heart attack in a motel. I was in Santa Monica at the time, so it was about three hours until I could get there. Doris told me that when his spirit left his body that the light bulb exploded and the table was split in half with a bright blue light. This did not surprise me. What did surprise me was when she confided in me that she felt like that she had been living, well, not with the same person ever since he came back from his walk that day, that someone else was there. She, too, had experienced another being in his body, and she told me that this being that left was only sent for a short period of time. She wanted me to record this, as she felt that I would know what to do with this material later. I took care of all the funeral arrangements for Doris, as she was in such a state that she could not think for herself with clarity. I don't remember much about this, as I was still processing the fact that George had left that day that we had taken the walk, and, and not the person that we were memorializing now at his service. It has now been 23 years since that eventful walk with George Van Tassel. I can truly say that if I had to mark a place in my life where I took a 180-degree turn, it'd be that walk in the sand dunes after reading the Wadi Scrolls. On July 1, 1991, Doris Van Tassel died. I received a phone call telling me that Doris had sold the pages of the manuscript for $10,000 a page. She had distributed them around the world to different people and had made it almost impossible to retrieve. This is the information I was told in 1991. I was devastated to hear this, as every decision I made was readying myself for the responsibility of this manuscript. I felt betrayed. I felt alone. My life went pretty much on hold after that, and not until the crack in the boulder at Giant Rock did I feel the need to write this down on paper. But something about the way that George told me that the rock would crack one day seemed to be the code or signal for me to finally release some of this information. Last year, in 1999, I went to visit someone who had been healed at Giant Rock by the ETs. I hadn't seen or heard from her in over 20 years. She had recently published a book about the Van Tassel's work and had reprinted a lot of George's former writings. One night, just before we were to retire, she brought a manuscript into my room. There sat a copy of the Wadi Scrolls. I was so stunned that I couldn't open them. They stayed unopened by me the entire stay. I had kept my part of the bargain and been betrayed. Now they were back, and I just wasn't. I knew that if I picked up the manuscript that I could never put it down, so I just never did. Everyone was dead now. Harvey, Doris, Jewish couple, Leo all except me.
No, thank you. I got the message, and it is still the same message that I gave George when he asked me what he should do with the manuscript. The world is still not ready, nor would it be ready for some time to come. Now here is the rest of the story that emerged in 2005. On my way to San Diego to catch a cruise ship for the Spiritual Cinema Circle, I stopped by to see this woman again as I was now reconsidering looking at the scrolls again. Maybe I'd been too hasty with my decision. Perhaps now I could maintain a more balanced degree of sanity concerning what I had already experienced through the years concerning the Wadi Scrolls. I was aware now that other scrolls were coming forth, and I noticed that no one was ever killed for it, so maybe I was safe after all. The Da Vinci Code and other books had paved the road for this kind of spiritual revaluation, and I knew that I had some galactic codes that would take spiritual seekers on a galactic adventure that would shed some light on their already curious minds about the truth concerning Christianity. I wasn't sure how far I wanted to take this information, but at least I was willing to pick up the scrolls again and make this determination. Get yourself ready to fall off your tricycle for this next revelation. When I mentioned to my friend that I was ready to read the Wadi Scrolls, she looked puzzled and said, What Wadi Scrolls? I refreshed her memory of my visit some years back, and she did remember that I had been at her house, but she had no memory of any Wadi Scrolls being by my bedside. In fact, she remembered nothing about the Wadi Scrolls and asked me to tell her about them. <laughs> I was so stunned gone that I couldn't speak, and since we hadn't had dinner yet, I encouraged us to go to a restaurant and continue our conversation there. I noticed that through dinner she was showing signs of dementia and that her memory was truly escaping her. But there was something about the way that she had been erased totally about the Wadi Scrolls that had me in a state of bewilderment. Had I missed the opportunity by simply refusing to pick up the scrolls again? Was I so terribly hurt and upset by past actions concerning the scrolls that I was paralyzed with regret to the point of complete denial? What had I done to myself and my commitment concerning the scrolls? I had missed the window. And now no one but me even had the memory of the history of how George had acquired the scrolls, Doris had sold them, I had turned my back on picking them up again, and now they were lost to me. Now as I'm getting ready to announce part one of Crack Between the Worlds for the exclusive report on Starseed Radio Academy, I am confident that many starseed, walk-ins, lightworkers, indigos, and crystal beings will be further activated as this story is broadcast and goes viral through the Internet. I trust that those listening to this story will honor the fact that these are my galactic experiences and will pass this on to others that may honor the source as well as the information. With that, I now close. Until next time, we meet in Galactic Sacred Space for Part 2 of Crack Between the Worlds Information, as secrets from the vault are being released in timing with certain coded 
and planetary activations on the planet. The time of this recording is September 18th, 2010. Read by Lavendar. Well, that concludes our broadcast for tonight. And I just want to say on behalf of Starseeds Everywhere, thank you, Lavendar, for your unwavering dedication and your focus on empowering starseeds to better serve the planet. Until next time, good night, everyone. You've been listening to Starseed Radio Academy. Visit our website at www.starseedhotline.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.